What's up, everyone? Welcome to Agitated Podcast, episode 11. This is Jessica, and today we're joined by Kat Dodds, wearer of many hats, friend of the show, anti-capitalist advertiser and media maker, dynamic human being. Kat was the mastermind behind the outreach and branding of Canadian documentary, The Corporation, you remember it, and now The New Corporation, The Unfortunately Necessary Sequel. We met Kat working with her through the films, but Kat has done tons of really interesting cultural work. We'll talk with her about some of it, but this woman has done so much, so you should check out our show notes to learn more about how truly impactful she is. We're so excited to have her join us to talk about anti-capitalist digital strategy, using data for building power within the movement, a little bit of Canadian politics, and the need for democratizing social media. Meet Kat Dodds. So we like to start off asking our guests the question this podcast is about... What is agitating you? And by agitated, we mean what's got you shaken up, riled up, ready to do something about it. Well, there's so many things, but uh, I think um, being Canadian, what's been huge in in the news this week here, which has me like furious and screaming at the TV and actually phoning the prime minister's office and ranting, is... um, the fact that he declared a uh, National Day of Truth and Reconciliation for September 30th and then proceeded to spend that day holidaying with his family in Tofino and ignoring the invitation by the the, ba- the Tkamloops and Shukupnik band in Kamloops, which is where the first of the, I'm not going to say discovered because they were known by a lot of people already, but where the evidence was uncovered in what is essentially a crime scene across the country, but the first uh, of the bodies of the young indigenous children who never made it home. And so he'd been invited not once, but twice, and they had expected some response on this day that he declared but in typical fashion of this prime minister of ours he's all about the 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 pantomime of caring about everything and um does nothing significant anyway he was forced by pretty much an outcry and uh, it says it all when the chief was at the event and was told at this event they were having this vigil they were having on that day that uh, by a reporter who had noticed because he tracked Trudeau's jet or whatever <laughs> that he where he was and uncovered this story that he'd quietly slipped away on a holiday instead of um, doing the right thing, which would have been at least participating in this day he'd finally been pressured to acknowledge. So he 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 did apologize and continues to apologize and. Every time you talk to him, he's apologizing for that. But and he showed up to an event they had yesterday. But even then, he was um, good on them, forced to sit through them, continuing to sort of lambaste his behavior and say, you've got a lot to prove going forward. So um, it, it has me riled up because it's so typical of this kind of gesture and so enraging and also so difficult to know how to to what to do about this kind of thing um because right now um it isn't even hitting the news right away anymore the continued discoveries that are being made mm. and we're we're talking about over 6000 children at this point i'm pretty sure and it's going to that number's going to go up. And I remember when the Truth and Reconciliation report came out, 
um, they were talking about numbers and everyone was like, oh, it can't be that high. And, and I mean, they knew because these weren't these weren't unknown numbers. These were literal people being torn away from their family. Right. And someone somewhere always knows, <laughs> right, when they... Yeah. So it's, it's, it's horrible when you think about this even this concept of discovery right so anyway i won't go i won't continue to rant about that but that's my big rant of the moment and it's certainly not the only thing i am agitated about but it's sort of it became quite because uh, this this second event happened uh, in the last couple of days so it's it's ongoing right now in terms of what what's going to happen as the fallout from this it couldn't even get through the full oh. performance couldn't even finish no. the performative gesture by showing up. I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or even just like being home and being like, I'm mourning or something, you know? Right. Like, nope, yeah. I'm literally doing the worst thing. I'm having. Yeah, a I'm, I'm. Yeah, I'm on a beach with my family. <laughs> In some oh, ways, though, God. it's good when they show you beyond the shadow of a doubt who they are. Um, because yeah. anybody who previously, you know, you know, hopefully it. it makes that more clear to people who who weren't sure yet um, that him and pretty much everybody in power uh, in especially on this uh, continent is full of shit all yeah. the time. Yeah, and this is on the heels of him squeaking back in to a minority government um, where unfortunately the evidence shows that the, our country is getting as polarized as your country around the extremes where the number one issue wasn't anything really Im debatable, but vaccines, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, and where, um, you know, I was involved in helping uh, a very wonderful decentralized campaign for uh, Angelia Padurai, um, who almost got in. And this was incredible because um, it was less than 400 votes at the end of the day. And those votes came after um, the advance poll and the mail-in ballots were finally counted. She actually won on election night. And she won coming from nowhere with a, a liberal candidate that had been in the running for the last two and a half years, like he'd been the candidate, he didn't get in. And in a writing where she was told at the beginning she had the less than 2% chance of getting through. Oh, wow. And instead, she almost won. And it was it was the closest, most undecided race in the country was that one riding. Wow. I hope she runs wow. again, because that can make all the difference. To her credit, I mean, when she was asked that question, she said, it's a bit too soon to decide. But she said, no matter what, this movement that was created, or that wasn't created, this movement that grew around her um out of that movement there will be another candidate whether it's her or not and she was and, and it was really exciting to watch this decentralized campaign it got me quite juiced up so agitated in a good way in that regard because um it seemed worth the effort you know there's a lot of so much to rail about but finding productive ways to find the joy in the movement <laughs> was really yeah mm. yeah oh so important yeah yeah, yeah. indeed i mean how else how else can we continue, right? Right, yeah. yeah. But yeah. you got to, yeah. like, underscore it. Otherwise, it, it can be easy to f lose sight of that or forget that. Yeah, or yeah. Yeah, so... And not. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, and I mean, her candidacy was really based on this idea of decentralized power, on, on a just um, chance for everyone to have a good life. This, this idea of really bringing the justice angle into all of the issues, 
um, and, uh, you know, actually gave it a nice moral challenge to the NDP itself to get itself together because it's been a little too lukewarm on all these things. And, you know, what are we supposed to do? Instead, we have these ridiculous people's party with ultra right wing weird ideas popping up and getting getting the vote that used to go to the Green Party. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Remember, guys, she's in Canada. So in terms of the terms she's using, they're not necessarily. We have a People's Party in this country, which is not ultra right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and they confused. choose these names, right? Yeah. And it's it's just such a weird, like, all of it. All of it is so weird. But uh, the, the bottom line is that these, these polarized factions are sh- of, of real extreme thinking are gaining ground. And um, there, but meanwhile... There is a lot of public dissatisfaction, like with 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 our current government in office. So the the challenge is finding some kind of hope to bring forward a different alternative that's not one of these other extremes. Of anyway, but but you know, I mean, I'm not one to hang all my hats on electoral politics, as you all know. <laughs> as is. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, we we know because Kat, you are you're cool. Like, you're cool. Recently, um, in our capacities move to amend, we were working with you um, and some of your colleagues on a panel and film screening, uh, which we'll link in the notes. If you want to check it out, you should definitely look at um, the corporation and the new corporation. And I was looking at your bios on the internet when I was putting this together <laughs> and reminded that you got, as you say, you got your advertising chops working at Adbusters, um, the anti-consumerist media company. Then you went on to work on the corporation and now the new corporation, some very impactful media. Um, and I'm wondering if you can tell us like why you've dedicated your work to work in anti-capitalist media making and what lit that fire for you? Hmm. Well, it actually started even before the corporation um, and before Adbusters um, when I saw the film Manufacturing Consent. Mm-hmm. And that was, now you can figure out how old I am by, by <laughs> working back. That means you're that, wise. <laughs> that film came out and I was at art school trying to live without plastic um and uh had no you know technology etc going on because i was very kind of anti everything at that point um and i'd heard noam chomsky speak more than once at that moment um in these lectures that he was doing around the time i think he was very much talking about central america in those years but um that term he came up with not i don't know if he came up with it but i heard it from him first cooperative anarchy was something that i latched onto um, and I'm not going to pretend I'm not smart. I don't think I've ever read an entire book by Noam Chomsky. But put it this way, when I saw the film Manufacturing Consent, I knew who he was and I'd had these ideas already. But when I saw that film, I had my aha moment. And I think I saw Peter Wintonic afterwards in their large life-size cutout of Noam Chomsky at the Cine Center at the university I was at. And I went up and talked to him. And I was just extremely um, moved by what I thought was, okay, if you want to be a separatist, you're not going to have an impact. So even mm-hmm. though his analysis about concision was uh, and and what the media does was so profound, the power of the media was also something that absolutely could not be left to those who had no problem with it. So that was the moment I switched over and decided I had to work in media, whatever that looked like. I was already doing organizing work, but I, that's when I decided 
and uh, around that time I met um, a friend, uh, Danielle Prohomolson, and she was working at the community television channel, right? The Shaw, whatever it was. I don't remember if it was Rogers or Shaw at the time. And um, she said, oh, I'm doing this show and you should work with me on this. And so we started, it was a complete volunteer, but we had access to a TV studio and she made a whole lot of great projects. And she also had a series called She TV, which was quite fun. And, and, and it was it was a humorous magazine style poking fun at, but in, uh, unveiling also just about any kind of women's issue, feminist issue, and all kinds of strange uh, t- things she did with it. And it was really playful. And so I helped her on some episodes. And then we made a documentary together uh, called Changing of the Avant-Garde's Women in Art. So that was my kind of moving into making media from from being a critic of it at a distance. And and um, so that was, that was the beginning. And very shortly after that, I moved to Vancouver. That was in Victoria at the time. And that's where Adbuster's office is based. So I remember going to about five interviews before I got the job at Adbusters of marketing manager. And in part, they told me later, it's because they couldn't believe that there was only one candidate that could do this job. (laughs) (laughs) And the reason for that, the reason for this is they were looking for somebody who could do marketing, had some experience. I had all my nonprofit and all my activism but that that wasn't so corporate, but also qualified for this grant, right? So in other words, you had to be on income assistance <laughs> at the time, mm-hmm. which I was because I'd quit my restaurant job in Victoria, which is all there was after art school, and, uh, <laughs> and gone to Vancouver with, with nothing. <laughs> so this finally, you know, was in the cards played right. And, and that turned into a really great opportunity for me and in fact you know testament to those those particular job grants don't exist in our right now but they actually really worked for me and other people because what they did is they gave you training um and so i started i I, what did i get i got courses in free courses in magazine writing and in fundraising for nonprofits and a bunch of cool stuff but mostly i got this amazing job where i was the marketing manager of this magazine and the first thing kala told me in his wonderful uh, estonian accent was god if nobody's threatening to sue us you're not doing your job (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so so yeah that and in my first week at adbusters i was writing copy for a greenpeace ad looking over the ne- upcoming magazine um piece uh the and um in the lawyer's office because they happened to be suing cbc over the refusal of uh their autosaurus ad which was an ad they did with greenpeace that was about the end of the age of the automobile right? So Mm. CBC had pulled this ad and had denied that it was because of um, complaints by the auto industry, although the trial proved otherwise. And uh, that was the beginning of it all like that. So but that was just a, you know, a nine month job with, you know, pathetic salary and a few perks because it was this job creation thing and after that um I just I I think I had a key to the office for about six more years and I became (laughs) (laughs) well I just have to say so Adbusters was like instrumental in me doing the work that I do this is Caitlin because when I took a year off from school in 2000 from college 
I remember the I remember the issue was, you know, it was like the global justice movement after Seattle and there was the protester on the cover and it was about like the corporate eye and it was all about mm-hmm. corporate personhood. And um I, there was a story about Arcata and and Point Arena and the work that was happening in far northern California to challenge corporate personhood. And it was like the only place in the United States where anybody was working on that. And that was like why I went to Arcata and worked with Democracy Unlimited. And then oh, that's awesome. Went on. So I was like, there probably wouldn't be a move to amend <laughs> if it, yeah. uh, that, that, that issue hadn't come out. Or maybe there would have, you know, maybe it was yeah. meant to be and there would have been a different way to find it. But that was the way that it came yeah. to me. <laughs> yeah. And it's probably why, too, when the corporation first came out, um, it was listed as one of Adbusters readers top favorite films, along with Fight Club. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> Movie night. Yeah. Watch both. Although the corporation is really long. So maybe. Yeah. Split the corporation was definitely extremely significant in my process and why when I saw the ad on Craigslist happened to live in Humboldt County Um, but yeah I watched it in like 08, 09 and I wasn't really that political at the time but it like completely shifted my entire analysis but yeah when I was reading the ad I was like wait this is that shit from that documentary and like you know that's uh (laughs) it was so many people come to us and say Mm -hmm. that it was because the corporation that that opened their eyes yeah yeah and it's adbusters well thank you for loving the film it's like (laughs) continue to take over my life since the since well yeah 1998 but um yeah so the only reason that I became involved with the corporation was because of Adbusters as well too I ended up on some panel about censorship talking about this Autosaurus case oh and a little fast forward irony Joel Bakken who's one of the directors of the new corporation and was part of the first corporation and author of the books etc um it turns out he actually was was um, advising on the legal side of that as a charter case to the Autosaurus case back then. I didn't know that mm. till now. Actually. How funny. Yeah. So that ties in with our other legal stuff we can discuss later. But but yeah, I was on a panel about censorship that Mark Akbar, um, who's the, the director, co-director with Jennifer Abbott of the first film, and he... Uh, he and I met and kind of became friends at that point on this panel. And he he and Peter Wintonic made Manufacturing Consent. So I'd met Peter and now I met Mark. And, and, and that friendship between them is how I met Mark and Joel when they started um, the corporation. And um, wouldn't it, so th- these things all kind of become part of the journey that connect people to what they're doing. That's awesome. Well, can we circle back to that legal stuff? Uh, yeah. Because we hear you are suing Twitter. We are. We are Tell us Twitter. about that. Yeah. So the the, the new corporation, um, it, it was finished just about a year ago. It had its official premiere at TIFF last year. And, um, of course, because of COVID, we've, we've had very little of a typical kind of launch whatsoever. And when we, when we tried to buy ads on twitter to promote the film which we needed to more than ever at the moment um and a little backtrack there is like like we need to buy ads because you can't really get very far with just organic you have to be you know ridiculous someone ridiculously obnoxious and with a lot of followers like donald trump or have a long-term very solid um 
amplifying strategy with people with enough followers because uh, we we only get to reach a, a tiny percentage, like under 5% of who is already following you. And also, if you're not a big corporate thing, corporate entity, you, you probably don't have a lot of followers. Like our at Corporation film didn't have that many. So we really needed to get our trailer out into the world. It was It was a pretty important strategy for us to get that trailer out there. And um, Cool World, my, the other company, the startup I have, which I have partnered with, um, among other others, Jen Evans, who is uh, has a company called Squeeze, and they um, specialize in in placing ads and doing it effectively. So <clears throat> we've been working with them and using some of their technology to do that. And they they buy ads all the time on social platforms. So we were actually pretty gobsmacked that they wouldn't let us twitter wouldn't let us buy an ad for the, so the new corporation trailer an ad just well first the bot just rejected it <laughs> right it just got mm-hmm. flagged and then um the woman that was actually doing the work to place the ad was very persistent she's also very experienced so she didn't give up easily and it's actually pretty crazy when you look at like like the sort of rigmarole i call it sort of baffle gab and (laughs) whack-a-mole all the different reasons they gave so we got an automatic reply first of all saying that um, tweets can be disapproved if they are found to violate the twitter ad policies with links to the policy that bars tweets with sensitive targeting so we asked them to advise what what the content that was problematic so we could remove it and this this went on this was after four different non reasons that kept um essentially trying to say that we violated their policy including um political content policy so even though we said you know we're not overtly political in that it's a trailer full of clips from a film which is documentary which is not uh promoting particularly a political party or a political action it's it's a it's critiquing the corporation the institution of it and they kept giving us reason after reason until we finally talked to a person and they sort of said sensitive targeting political content then it was violates it's a cause related then they finally told us we also couldn't get certified to be a cause-related advertiser because that wasn't an option available in Canada. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like all these ridiculous, ridiculous things. The, it, it boiled down to an, an, a well-documented, fortunately for us on the lawsuit, a well-documented trail of excuses that kept changing. And in the end, they just wouldn't, wouldn't do it. Um, so it said that, I'm confirming the the final the person that we finally spoke to Abigail Scott a Twitter employee said taking another look I'm confirming that it seems like the tweets have been halted for violating our sensitive inappropriate content as well as our political policy it's like we were infuriated and uh, you know not everyone that gets this kind of treatment because we're not the only one you hear about yeah but not everyone has a constitutional lawyer who's one of the directors of the film So Joel, in his day job, is a law professor at UBC. He's written many books besides the two corporation books as well and specializes in constitutional law. And he and his friend Sujit Chowdhury, who's another international and constitutional law expert, um, they basically thought this was outrageous too. And uh, 
they are working pro bono. So Joel, in this case, is both counsel and plaintiff. But why um, I'm in the lawsuit and why Cool World is in the lawsuit is because Cool World had the contract to place these Twitter ads. So we, we have to be involved because uh, we're the ones that actually did it. And our contract makes us a free agent, like we're not an agent of the production company. So Joel's there because it's his intellectual property that's being censored. We're there because our business and our contract we weren't able to fulfill by placing these ads. Mm -hmm. And me personally, I'm a plaintiff as well because it happens to be that because of my long history with these films, I own the Twitter channel. Uh, uh. (laughs) So therefore, it's me ultimately that has to be part of the lawsuit or there is no... because. neither the filmmakers or the production company have that um, terms of service agreement with Twitter directly. That would be me personally. Yeah. So are you, is the argument that their, their rules violate free speech or that Twitter is basically like the commons and people need to be able to hear what you have to say slash you also need to be able like what's what's the yeah and it's a little more nuanced because because like right now the 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 views of free speech and the rules that the u.s has are kind of unique in the world mm-hmm. Canada's a little more like the rest of the world where it's a little more nuanced where but free speech <laughs> is like the only thing that matters <laughs> even though that's not true here yeah it's not it's not so it's not so polarizable is that Mm -hmm. there are protections in the canadian constitutional constitution there are protections both for speech that is not harmful and against speech that is like uh, like so Mm. there are already there are already other other ways a constitution yeah so not to say that this isn't inherently got its own problems too because because governments but but at least there's already a mechanism by which there's a, a mandate for the government not just to protect us from harmful speech but to protect our speech when it's not harmful like that does exist in Canadian law so this is also why we're suing the Canadian government as well as Twitter because we're suing them for failing to protect our freedom of speech by not regulating Twitter because essentially Twitter is not regulated and the 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 public square argument is furthered by the fact that all politicians including the ones in Canada including our lovely you know performative (laughs) prime minister they all use Twitter to proclaim just about everything they do and say every announcement it's it's the and and you know so even though Twitter basically said we're not censoring you because you can still you know promote your tweet organically we know that that's just a red herring like organic isn't enough mm-hmm. so yeah. you know if in a perfect world i would say bring back the organic reach we used to have remember when they seduced all of the organizations to use these platforms because they actually mm-hmm. did work mm-hmm. for us right right <laughs> Now they're selling us back to ourselves. Yep. Yeah, I think it's important that mm. you said that because obviously not everybody has access to advertising dollars. And so, I mean, your 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 case seems, you know, like a legitimate argument. And at the same time, like, what about the people? What about the regular people, too, mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. Um, are just kind of talking into a void and could potentially get traction? Yeah. And that's why we're fighting it, too, because it's not just about our film. It's about any film like that. And um, whereas... 
you know, a cause might not have a lot of money to advertise. Most of the time, if you've actually managed to make a film, you will have you will have both some budget and some obligation to market it in more traditional ways. The issue here is that we weren't able to take that platform we should have rightfully had, you know, with other government money, because the, the money that we were using to try to buy the ad was from other government funding agencies here, right? This is a government mm, funding agency funded film with, with, you know, like there's nothing fringy about it. Now, if our point of view was actually upsetting to Twitter, well, that's one thing, but they never kind of actually came out and said that. Um, mm -hmm. But if, if, for example, we were allowed to amplify our point of view through these means, that would have, in fact, benefited um, other causes that had less of the ability, which is kind of the model we were hoping to repeat that we did with the first film. Because one of the more groundbreaking things I think we did with the first film is we sort of spread the amplification. Like we weren't asking grassroots groups to help us promote the film as much as we were saying this groundswell of movement that's happening around it is going to also bring attention to your organization. So it was much more reciprocal at its core. Um, and this time around, to be honest, it's like, okay, um, if people haven't heard of the film, how is the film going to be of much use to them? It's sort of a catch-22. So so this invisibility by lack of promotion is pretty important. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. Yeah, mm -hmm. That makes sense. Well, switching gears a little bit, um, but I think it's all related. We wanted, since you spent a long time, you know, thinking about the role of technology and media and marketing, and also not to put words in your mouth, but you have an anti-capitalist perspective. Um, what's your vision, Kat, for the future of media, technology, and data? And, and also specifically, can you talk about what it means to decolonize digital strategy? Right. Right. That's a lot. But um, <laughs> so um, I've always kind of said that co-promotion is the secret weapon of the underfunded, right? So if we can help to amplify each other's messages, that's one of the core pieces that we've been doing. I think we've been doing all along with everything we've been up to. Um, that being said, there's there's the opportunity through social media to do bigger outreach with the problems that we've outlined in that we're sort of stuck with what the algorithms will allow us, with what the platforms will sell back to us and with what uh, we can get away with um, not being separatists. Like, like we can, if you try not to use the social media platforms, where will you go? This is the, this is the danger we have now. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of very valid movements going on right now that have to do with reining in or democratizing big tech in general. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for, for breaking up the monopolies. Like I think that's been, a lot of people are calling for that, uh, including people like Color of Change. That's what all of their ads are, seem to be about right now. Uh, because the biases in these, in these monopolies clearly benefit um, the status quo, which ultimately is white supremacy. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Sad to mm -hmm. say, but the status quo is that. So, so in order to fight back against that, um, we need to do it together. And that's, I don't have an answer to that. I have some strategies we're trying to enact, <laughs> which is uh, in part also why we formed Cool World, um, which on the web is cool.world. <laughs> 
and uh, essentially right now it's um, it's the beginning of a platform. It's not fully there yet, but the idea there is it's a, it's a platform where progressive people, whether they have a project or a campaign or a film or a book or whatever they uh, whatever, will be able to use our platform to tap into some of that collective, um, whether it's through like-minded mail lists that they might be able to access if once we have enough members um and actually thanks to your move to men's screening we have like i think about 250 of those people said they wanted to be part of the cool world so that's very cool awesome yeah so so there's that that's the more opt-in you know we actually know who they are and and it's permission based um then we have the 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 other side of it too which is my partner at squeeze where they do um they do behavioral tracking online. So this, this, is a, this is a touchy thing with those who are completely against surveillance advertising. The trouble with being against surveillance advertising carte blanche is that it's kind of like I was before I saw manufacturing consent. It's kind of like trying to exist without the media. Um, we can decide that surveillance advertising is a, is, is a bad thing, but there is absolutely no way we're going to stop it. It's, it's whether we, I think it would be far better if we were to focus on regulating it and limiting it and coming up with some democratizing ways to um, prevent it from being um, the dangerous tool that it is. And that this is, you know, cool world can't possibly solve all of that <laughs> all in and of itself. But what our vision is, is that if we can tap into a little bit of the the simple side of surveillance advertising, which is just retargeting anonymously. So we, um, we would be able to not know all the details um, of someone's, who they are, etc. But we would be able to put ads in their pathway that we think would be relevant to them, which is already happening to all of us right now. <laughs> this is happening with everything we do if you shop with a credit card if you're online at all this is happening to us i would rather see that i was getting a whole lot more cool things on my feed to do with causes i care about and that the causes i care about were being amplified in the same way because right now the people who can afford to spend money on this kind of advertising are the huge corporations, the radical right, the white supremacists, they're the ones doing it all. The, the trolls, the Hasbara, they're all busy um, spending a fortune influencing us. And so when we talk about the really negative effects of influencing of these social platforms, these are very real things. And then we say, okay, how do we use behavioral targeting and not be literally assholes, right? Like that, that's what we've been struggling with. And I think the way you do it is by anonymizing the data, by, by proactively um, adhering to the strictest of privacy laws, not you know breaking those rules. And then by, by um, building critical mass for alternative um, content, right? So that there, there's actually enough numbers. And I mean, it, to put it, put it specifically how that would work, um, if we were to say to do a, an ad campaign for the agitated podcast, um, what if we had, you know, millions of interactions that we could 
target our ad to that we know would want to hear your podcast because of the other other uh, that option isn't really open to real progressive groups because there's nobody collecting that kind of data and if they're doing any of this kind of thing they're doing they're usually doing it within their own organization only and not across projects Mm -hmm. right so you're making like Mm -hmm. a centralized place where basically there's like like like-minded people who are interested in social change um, Mm -hmm. and and then saying like that's a pool where we could kind of solidarity like (laughs) talk to each other and kind of you know and so rather than kind of competing with each other or assuming that we would be competing with each other um when we're talking to you know this pool of people that came in from this project and you know some other pool Am I understanding it right? Yeah. And and I mean, that's more literal if you're talking about a big mail list, which people kind of understand. But when we're talking about targeting with advertising, you're always targeting. And if you're just doing it by boosting an ad through Twitter or Facebook, you're stuck with what they will allow allow you to target through their platform. Mm -hmm. Um, What we can do by placing those ads is we can target IP addresses that are beyond the limits of the platforms, um, at least right now. I mean, these things keep changing, so it's hard to know how it'll work in the future. But we're, when we when we do an ad campaign, we can gather data based on our taxonomy, not Twitter's taxonomy and not Facebook's taxonomy. And we can decide this group of people by the way they interacted. And, we, and again, when I say people, we don't know who they are as individuals. We just know that they're targetable <laughs> with ads. So we know they're going to care about this kind of content versus the other kind. Um, now, and, and then when you look at what was so evil about what Cambridge Analytica did is the way I like to put it is they, they 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 preyed on fear and they used lies and fake news to foment to, to create chaos and to and to produce this discord. But these same tools, um, and we know that the algorithms are set up with, with to, to to actually favor these outrageous things. But if we were able to target IP addresses of people that we know from our experience from tracking the clicks based on our taxonomy, that they are actually interested in, you know, truth and justice and a better world, we would have, um, we would get a response by targeting those people with content that was not the same kind of uh, fear mongering and and hate creating content. Um, And that experiment, to be honest, just has not happened. We've only had the negative experiments. They're the only ones with enough critical mass to prove anything. So, mm-hmm. and, and then what happens with the left overall that I've observed continually is there's just this battle over segments of the left. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. and, and we've said, like, when it comes to film promotion, it's pretty clearly uh, that you don't need to compete for audiences. You need to collaborate because Netflix has proved that. I mean, <laughs> you don't need to compete. Yeah. There, people who watch your film and love it are going to watch every other film with content like that and and uh you know I, I bet yeah that one seems like a very no-brainer yeah 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 but i mean it's kind of the same like those people watching those films are the same people you want to reach with your campaigns and your petitions yeah. and your and so when we have a um a film with an impact campaign that's the going language around these things right now but that idea it's it's like pulling together all these pieces because we when we compete for these lists um they just 
like that's also kind of like saying, you know, we own these people and that's kind of insulting. I think we need to earn the right to feed content to people by being relevant mm. and and uh, producing value for them. And I think that, that that's what's been missing in in um, sort of the movement movement related work is and i'm not not all across the board like you're a coalition and that's part of that 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 coalition idea but in a lot of the other big organizations um they their lists are very much just about creating revenue to keep the organization going not to say they're not doing good work with them but what we're talking about definitely what we're talking about is is really about being able to mobilize and organize populations to take actions that aren't only transactional Totally. Well, and Mm -hmm. also it's like no one. What about the fact that what we want is people to feel like there's energy, like there's movement, like there's stuff happening in multiple places and that they are part of it and they're seeing it rather than like, okay, you're here and you've been claimed. And so so we only want you to know about this because the only way that we think of you is somebody who clicks, you know, a petition or clicks or shares, not actually like a human who is in the movement and how important it is that that every person who wants to change the world finds the place to do that and and actually act more than just like a clicker. Yeah. So if we're able to um, generate more self-organized activism, through this 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 film and and have that be more grassroots that would again be very much like what we observed during the first film first film is like so many people use the first film in their organizing work and uh, we don't even know all the stories right we don't have any ideas there's things we heard about and then there's so many things that went on that we never knew about but if we can seed that kind of thing and then right now what do we need support for well we need support for getting screenings out like the screening that you held as move to amend um and we're um we're trying to do the same thing wherever we can um so raising the money to keep the organizational machine going and then sustain it uh i think there's a model there that could be done and it's kind of um, it could re- it could really do a lot for causes and groups and films that may have their day in the traditional way with theaters, but then it's over and it's over, right? And I'm seeing this hybrid model emerge too, because now because of COVID, a lot of films just got kind of released digitally or re- put onto Netflix and things like that. But there's still organizing work that can happen around it. And there's still ways to sustain that. So figuring out just how to use the different technologies to create that kind of dialogue um, and not have it only have to be out there um, subject to the whims of the platforms, the public platforms. Yeah, totally. Well, and Move to Amend has used that strategy of Mm -hmm. partnering with films, showing films, you know, I mean, part of why it was so easy for us is because it's something we've been doing all along. I mean, it's nice when you can even do it in person, but yeah, um, but now people are used to doing it online. So that's okay. Um, And, you know, really using them as a as a way to pull people in who maybe want to initially just participate in something in a more passive way than like show up to a meeting um but then get fired up the the trick is having a film that actually is effective 
for doing that. And some one of the struggles that yes. we've had it moved to amend is that oftentimes the analysis that is put forward by various films, especially if they're talking about like money and politics, is not actually articulating our analysis that is, you know, a structural critique of more than just money and politics. And so then yeah. we got to like fill in, you know, make that bridge. A lot of work uh, there. Yeah. yeah. It's always more helpful when it's like, no, this is this this film doesn't actually need to have the gaps filled in by our organizers. But even so, we've made it work. And uh you know, it just makes sense. It's like if you're doing a documentary about about something that's wrong in the world, presumably you're you're doing that because you want that to change and not partnering with people who are then motivated and inspired by your work to then make it happen or start working on it. Just it's never made sense to me. So um, in addition to Cool World, uh where I'm sure people can go there, kind of get signed up and, and join a list and be kept up to date on these projects and the parallel projects. And if there's any more we need to say about that besides go to cool.world, fill that in that blank. But also in the meantime, uh, as you're working on these really exciting um, projects, what, what media resources would you recommend to um, our listeners? Like, where do you go for information? Pretty broad question, but where do I go for information? Yes, well, Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> same. Well, specifically, anybody. I mean, you know, that's the question that people get. Is like, you know, it's overwhelming. So, telling people where to go. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I follow any one thing in particular. I tend to graze a lot, but and have a different kind of eye towards it. Like, I don't read a lot of the mainstream publications on a regular basis. But I kind of get the news filtered through people that I'm um, kind of more trusting and with, with what they have to say. But I mean, I've I've looked at Democracy Now has actually been a huge informer of a lot of what I've been interested in all along. I'm on their list. I'm trying to think of that because I, I tend to get things in my inbox too. But I'm drawing a blank at all the different ones I get. I have a lot of newsaholics in my life. <laughs> So they're always pointing things out. But actually, I also watch I also watch a lot of um, Al Jazeera. Um, but yeah, I mean, I kind of I kind of I, I listen to a series of um, bits of radio news, TV news, Internet news. But I, I have a tendency to get fed things by the people around me, too. <laughs> like they'll just send things to me. So that's not very easy for other people to Emulate. Yeah, being so plugged into media is probably handy in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll tell people to follow you and then you can reshare, <laughs> you know, you, you, I'm sure you reshare the good stuff that <laughs> your network and community gives you. How can people find you on Twitter? Um, yeah. There's quite a few ways. Um, Cat at Cool World is my personal Twitter. And then, of course, I'm often the one behind at cool.world. That's a dot for that at cool dot world, and also at hello cool world, which is the first company, um, and then at corporation film, which isn't always me, but could be, yeah. <laughs> all right, cool. We'll link all of that in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, and um, also if there's and anything that comes up wisdom afterwards, too. yeah, yeah, Dra- at drawing wisdom, yeah, okay. which is the uh, which is part of hello cool world that uh, I co-founded with my. Um, creative partner Jada Gabriel Pape, who's from the Hussein Nemo people on Vancouver Island, and so that's the one where we do a lot of our 
um, Indigenous solidarity and content work. We we have uh, a podcast that hasn't launched yet that we're starting um, and um, have been making short films and a lot of educational content. So that's that's another venue that we have. Well, thank you so much. You're really interesting and we really appreciate the perspective and getting to talk about media. We we talk sometimes here about Twitter and big tech and all of that. And it was really good to have your perspective and uh, wisdom. So thank you. It's a pleasure. Yeah. And is there anything else you want to say before we wrap up? Oh, yeah. Anything? Yeah. We all we, we do need um, support for the Twitter uh, fund. We're fundraising. So if you go to GoFundMe Twitter Gone Rogue and want to contribute to the campaign, because even though the two lawyers are doing it pro bono, there's costs we have. And then there's the potential if we lose that I will owe money. So we're trying to raise raise a bit of money there. And uh, it, and it's going into the impact campaign that we are doing around all of this too so we can put that in the show notes also we also started a there's a podcast that we just launched last week on joelbacken.com and it's also on itunes we just got the one episode so far which is the twitter gone rogue episode so you can hear us explaining a lot of this on that too but excellent okay not just my point of view but uh, joel and jen and sujit's as well congrats you have a million projects Oh my goodness. You're always like five new ones every time I talk to you. I love it. Uh, thank you so it's much. For... Spider web of purpose. <laughs> <laughs> love and being that. a consultant. Cool. Well, thank cool. you so much for joining us, Kat. Yeah. Awesome. We really appreciate you. Hey, it's Shelly back with another Twitter roundup where we parse through some of the worst discourse and phenomena that this website has to offer so that you don't have to. Today, we're going to look at the feminist author to TERF Pipeline. As many of you know, TERF stands for Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist, although they now prefer the term gender critical. These are usually cis women and their allies, who are often conservatives and men, who believe that trans women are men infiltrating their spaces, that trans men are erasing women and lesbians, and that non-binary genders are fake and a threat to womanhood. J.K. Rowling is the first and most notable example of this. As the pioneer, Rowling first came out as a turf to her very large following on Twitter last year by hilariously decrying the phrase, people who menstruate, as an erasure of women. She then doubled, tripled, and quadrupled down in deeper and more sinister ways as the backlash mounted. Now, fast forward to October of 2021, where we find ourselves in a new wave. First, on the fifth of the month, author Joyce Carol Oates goes off on they-them pronouns by tweeting, They will not become a part of general usage, not for political reasons, but because there would be no pronoun to distinguish between a singular subject, they, and a plural subject, they. Language seeks to communicate with clarity, not to obfuscate. That is its purpose. And boy, did she get ratioed. Despite her attempt to extract her gatekeeping statement from politics, many pointed out that she's also just plain wrong. As one user put it, Singular they has been in general usage for hundreds of years. You use it all the time without realizing it. Then, just two weeks later, on the 19th, Margaret Atwood, best known for her novel The Handmaid's Tale, 
retweeted an article titled, Why Can't We Say Woman Anymore? Atwood had previously positioned herself on the correct side of the J.K. Rowling debate, so a cursory look around turf Twitter shows they aren't quite ready to accept her yet. But it also goes to show that the pull to the dark side is quite strong, and one-time allies are falling into its grip. The notion that the term woman is being erased is beyond ridiculous. I am very much a woman, trans women are very much women, and many trans men and non-binary folks share my reproductive system and experiences. Inclusive language is not a threat to me or my experience of womanhood. In fact, it's quite comforting. Twitter user Hillary Agro tweeted something I deeply related to. She said, As a pregnant woman, I felt more comfortable when providers use terms like pregnant people because that kind of inclusivity meant they were more likely to take my concerns as a disabled person seriously. It means they listen. Anyway, woman, 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 woman. You're still allowed to say it, folks. Twitter user Nico Stratus captured the absurdity of this notion best. You can't say woman anymore. You have to say happy holidays. And that does it for this installment of Twitter Roundup. Remember, agitated is not a safe space for TERFs, but it is a safe space for women. Women, 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 women. All right, thank you for tuning in. You can sign up for our email list so you can get a notification whenever a new episode drops. Sign up to get notified at agitatedpodcast.com. You can also leave us your feedback under the Contact Us section of the website. Don't forget, we've got stickers. If you'd like one, drop us a line with your address through any of our social media channels or the website. And speaking of social media, we'd love to connect with you there. You can find us at Agitated Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Please don't forget to subscribe and rate us five stars on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you tune in to podcasts. And if you would, leave a positive review on iTunes. It really helps the algorithm bump our podcasts and new people find us on our show. And please share us with your friends. Podcasts like ours grow through word of mouth. So thank you for your support. And a big thanks to Jason and Radical Guide for helping us produce this show and Alfonso for helping us with promotion. See you next time.